It's Friday, the 14th of May. The year is 2021. The sun is low in the sky, and the densely packed, besieged Gaza Strip is holding its breath. A fireball erupts from a cluster of high-rise buildings. The explosion rips through the air, followed in quick succession by another. A column of thick black smoke rises hundreds of feet into the sky as dust and debris falls back down to earth. And then another, a fireball and a deafening blast bellows across. May 14th was the fourth day of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. A ceasefire would not be called until May 21st. By the time the fighting ended, the Israeli military had hit 1,500 targets inside Gaza. 260 Gazans would be dead, at least 129 of them civilians, including 66 children. And rockets fired from Gaza into Israel would kill 12 Israelis, including two children. In addition to the tragic loss of life, 2,400 housing units would be rendered uninhabitable in Gaza, and 50,000 damaged. Over 2,000 industrial, trade and service facilities were also destroyed or partially damaged. My name is Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. Gaza has witnessed multiple rounds of violence. Responding to rocket attacks fired by Hamas, the controlling authority in the Strip, or other militant groups, Israel regularly unleashes devastating, often disproportionate attacks from the air. As well as the awful loss of life, the destruction of property and businesses compounds the hardships of the people of Gaza. One year on from the most recent Israeli attacks, reconstruction efforts in Gaza, which have been blockaded by Israel for 15 years, have failed to gather momentum. This time of the year definitely is bringing back personal memories as well that are very hard. This is Najla Shawa, a resident of Gaza and a food security and livelihoods manager from the charity Oxfam. Najla recalls the fierce bombardment experienced by Gaza one year ago. Unfortunately, what uh, these uh, 12 days last May were, um, were extremely um, heavy and intense in terms of destruction. Uh, Gaza is very much acquainted with such uh, rounds of escalations. However, it was also very dramatic in terms of the, the scale of destruction. It was roads uh, near schools, public facilities, uh, water infrastructure, residential buildings and homes. Israel launched the attacks in May 2021 in response to rocket fire from the Gaza Strip, which in turn was prompted by Israel's forced expulsion of Palestinian families from East Jerusalem and attacks by Israeli forces against worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The attacks represented a tragedy for civilians living in the area, but this was simply the latest in a long list of injustices that have been thrust upon the 25-mile-long coastal strip. Gaza is already suffering from decades of lack of development efforts, a war after the other, escalation after the other, and you have the blockade in between all that. So whenever there's a crisis, there is no recovery. You don't go back. And that's why it's like one on top of the other, on top of the other. You hardly go back to the point where it started and it just keeps on accumulating more, more issues and problems. These problems cover a broad range. Water is a chronic problem for Gaza. The average daily water consumption per capita is 88 litres, to be used for all needs, including drinking, washing, cleaning and cooking. 
This number falls below the recommended 100 litres per capita per day as set out by the World Health Organization. Electricity is a further problem. People in Gaza can expect as little as four hours a day, resulting in a heavy reliance on generators. And the lack of electricity also hinders the work of pumps that bring water from wells. Access to healthcare is another serious issue. The system has limited resources, outdated and failing equipment, a shortage of drugs and medicines, and an ever-growing demand. Hospitals and health facilities are also regularly affected by power cuts. Adding to this, Gaza also has an unemployment rate of over 50%, and persistent problems with food insecurity, which both contribute heavily to high poverty levels. There is constant uncertainty in how people can live their lives. So it's, it's really around the entire picture and very much the lack of hope also among people uh, in, in, uh, in having a good future or a good living. People in Gaza want to work, they are eager to make a living, but simply there are no, no opportunities whatsoever. The Israeli blockade compounds the day-to-day difficulties of those living in the Strip. And when homes and businesses are destroyed, it can be almost impossible to rebuild what has been lost. Israel first imposed the blockade when Hamas took control of the Strip in 2007 on the back of a dispute with the Palestinian Authority over the 2006 election result that Hamas won. In the following years, the resistance group was designated as a terrorist organisation by a number of international governments, including the US, UK, EU, Canada and Australia, a designation that the Israelis have relished. And it is this designation that predicates the blockade itself. This is Yara Arsi, Assistant Professor of Global Health Management and Informatics at the University of Central Florida and a visiting scholar at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. And in the eyes of many politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere, justifies Israeli airstrikes and the other violence that kills and maims and ruins the lives of people in Gaza. And when these airstrikes are over and civilians seek to rebuild their lives, the blockade raises its ugly head. Israel does have to approve all materials that enter Gaza, including even the most basic goods. So we're talking pipes, we're talking lumber, cement, generators, all sorts of medical equipment. So on top of regulating everything that enters Gaza, Israel has made this extremely arbitrary category, which is euphemistically called, quote unquote, dual use, that is loosely defined as goods that Israel acknowledges have an inherent civilian use, but can also be used for military purposes. The list of dual-use items is expansive and was made public for the first time in 2016, following a freedom of information request by the Israeli NGO Gashar. The dual-use list is split in two. The first list, of 56 prohibited items, relates both to Gaza and the occupied West Bank, while the second list, of 61, relates just to Gaza. Uh, So this list has dozens of items, including uh, fertilizers, chemicals, types of binoculars, water skis, fireworks, military-style uniforms, badges, and shoes, drilling equipment, cement, welding equipment, metal detectors, uh, wood planks that are greater than one centimeter thick, and so on. While it's true that some of these items could be used in a military capacity, as could be said for almost any item, those that suffer the most from this policy are not those who are engaged in military action, but those who are struggling to live day to day. In terms of the effects of this blockade, I mean, it's enormous. It not only blocks and delays the import of needed items, 
but it has made economic development so impossible in Gaza that it has secondary effects like increasing the unemployment rate, which is at nearly half the population. It contributes significantly to food and water insecurity. It prevents timely access to health care and prohibits certain forms of health care, especially cancer care, from being available in Gaza at all. It disrupts all aspects of civilian life in Gaza. There is not a single humanitarian report published since the start of the blockade that does not name the blockade as the single most destructive force in Gaza today. The blockade of Gaza, now in its 15th year, comes into direct conflict with the work of charities like Oxfam. The Israeli policies, the blockade, um, the restrictions of entry of goods, it affects all the work that is done, not by Oxfam, by also uh, other organizations, even the UN agencies, etc. The way Israel has been dealing with issues like the dual use item, what they call, they really affect people's livelihoods on the ground. It's not just uh, items that are unnecessary uh, and and that we see we see in uh, in in items that are uh, needed for agriculture uh, for example we see it in very basic like making of greenhouses uh, fertilizers and pesticides with the fisher folks for many many years a small engine for the boats have not been uh, allowed since i think 2007 the israeli policies mean that simple solutions which have the potential to create positive change become almost impossible mountains to climb since it was permanently put in place in 2007, the siege of Gaza, which prevents the entry of reconstruction material, has been described as inhumane, a form of collective punishment and a violation of international law. So with all this outrage, what is the international community doing to prompt its removal? You know, when is the last time you heard an impassioned speech by some politician from the West or some multilateral agency about the blockade? When was the last time the Arab League mentioned the blockade? The reality is the people of Gaza are forgotten until there is bombing. Um, enabling the blockade in Gaza, which, let's remember, is entering its 15th year, is among the greatest moral stains in modern times, in my opinion. Um, the international powers, and I even hesitate to use this phrase because it seems to be increasingly meaningless, have completely accepted Israel's arguments that this blockade is somehow based on security, the same blockade that their own NGOs say causes wide-scale suffering among this civilian population of two million, half of whom are children. For years, foreign governments have chosen to stand by and give Israel almost free reign over the lives of Palestinians, including with the blockade of Gaza, leaving the citizens of the Strip with little hope for real change. Najla again. To be honest, I'm not very hopeful as a Palestinian. I'm not saying that we should not, as uh, in the international community, should continue this pressure. But also we should be uh, honest with ourselves. We know that even with the uh, governments that do pressure, they, they do it with some uh, shyness and some, you know, uh, reservations, you know, just uh, open it a little bit so that we keep some humanitarian assistance or some, uh, you know, it's it's not at all the way we uh, or Palestinians would like to have it. Unfortunately, there's no decision that is coming from Palestinians. It's it's all like it's just an object. We are becoming an, just an object in, in this game. Following the devastating 2014 bombardment of Gaza, the UN did make some efforts to ensure that what had been destroyed was rebuilt. 
It was called the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism. Every few years, every point that we reach where there is a turning point of some sort, we come with a catchy mechanism or process to to look like it's resolving issues. Of course, uh, this again, like many others, it's uh, it's just complicating Palestinian lives much more than before. And Yara Asi. The Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism was established after the 2014 attacks on Gaza. Um, It puts the United Nations, supposedly this kind of neutral arbiter, at the center of a very complex economic process meant to monitor the so-called dual-use items. Um, the, the, The rationale is it takes too long to import these goods we can never reconstruct in these conditions. Let's create a mechanism that kind of fast tracks the approval of these goods. It was originally presented as a temporary measure that was meant to benefit Palestinians. Um, and it was also meant to grant governing power to the PA, which was a signatory on the mechanism. And in its failings, instead of challenging the blockade, or instead of empowering Palestinian civil society who was in, in Gaza, who was not consulted on this Gaza reconstruction mechanism, all the mechanism has succeeded in is formalizing Israel's role as the final arbiter of what enters Gaza and when. The Gaza reconstruction mechanism failed in its core aims and has even strengthened the Israeli blockade. If the international community can't or won't help end the blockade, and the UN is unable to implement a mechanism that empowers and helps citizens of Gaza, then maybe they could get help from Fatah, the Palestinian Authority in the occupied West Bank. I think for Palestinians, um, our political and geographic fragmentation is one of the most despairing parts of the last few decades. You know, I certainly think the division between Hamas and Fatah has hindered progress on any number of fronts, But I also think this is one of those many barriers that is almost more rhetorical than practical. Let's remember that no Palestinian has voted in a meaningful election in almost 20 years. Um, Neither the leaders of Hamas nor Fatah have had to face the Palestinian public, which widely disapproves of both entities, according to public polling. So, yes, Gaza is unfortunately suffering the most from this divide. There has to be more efforts towards making the two actually work together. But the international community is not helping uh, with that. Since uh, since the elections and the results of the elections, they have been increasing this gap or building the gap until it's now, uh, you see, it's impossible. Uh, We don't see it possible that they will go back uh, together and and actually work together. And it's, it's very unfortunate because it is affecting people's lives. in in, in many different ways. Fatah in the occupied West Bank and Hamas in Gaza have been locked in a sour disagreement since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip, making it unlikely that Fatah would come to Gaza's aid to end the blockade. Not least of all, because Fatah is situated in the occupied West Bank and are also dealing with their own problems related to Israeli occupation. Prospects for a political solution that will bring an end to the blockade and allow for the free flow of materials needed for reconstruction look vanishingly slim. But that doesn't mean that help can't come from foreign countries. Often, in the immediate aftermath of Israeli attacks, Gaza appeals for an injection of financial aid. And faced with images of civilians bombed out of their homes, the pledges are made. The key word there is pledged. 
Like many other humanitarian issues, many donors pledge funding that they never actually deliver. And this is increasingly the case for Gaza, especially from the Arab donors who put out the largest statements about donating money to Gaza. And then when you look at what was actually fulfilled, it's often very little. So when you hear billions have been pledged to Gaza, we, you know, there are sites that compile how much has actually been dispersed. Following the conflict in 2014, world leaders pledged over $5 billion for reconstruction, redevelopment and government assistance. Six months later, just 300 million had reached the territory, a fraction of what was needed. Some donors privately expressed reticence about delivering financial reconstruction aid when the prospects for more violence and more destruction was so high. Unfortunately, this is something that Gazans got used to. You know, empty promises because of the politics of, of this all. Uh, everything uh, is, is politicized. Uh, it doesn't, even uh, from Arab donors or other donors, it's, it's politicized. We know that the pressure that all uh, agreements are put in, uh, they are all have to be in alignment with, uh, with some interests, uh, let's say, uh, and some promises and some commitments, etc. So it's never a, de- a fair deal, uh, even when it comes to reconstructing uh, houses, uh, people's homes. And uh, from what I know, uh, personally, at least that the 2014 uh, war was um, the reconstruction actually uh, still didn't uh, finish we still there are some remaining uh, remaining homes that were not rebuilt you can't not only get back to baseline but you can't develop something new with this kind of inconsistent unpredictable uh, humanitarian aid system and that's on top of bombings that can take out entire apartment buildings, take out hundreds of homes in just a single minute. Um, It's very hard to see real progress and development when you're constantly just rebuilding and clearing rubble once again. One of the reasons the blockade of Gaza persists, preventing the entry of reconstruction materials, is Israel's continued sighting of the security situation. It was their reasoning for the blockade when they first imposed the restrictions, and they continue to lean heavily on it now. While it's not unfair to view rockets being fired into civilian areas as a security risk, the blockade of Gaza has now morphed by Yara's assessment into a form of collective punishment. But if your security, and I use security here in quotes, is reliant on a system that essentially imprisons millions of civilians, half of whom are children, prevents them from getting cancer treatments, prevents them from accepting scholarships to attend universities abroad, prevents them from fishing on their own coast as far as they would like, from building their own seaport or airport, from even importing certain types of foods, from marrying other Palestinians in the West Bank, is it really security? The argument here, when you really get to the core of it, that has to be understood as the fundamental foundation of this is that all Palestinians are potentially dangerous. This is not an argument that anyone should accept. Preventing Palestinians uh, from living their lives is not security, it's punishment for the mere act of being born Palestinian and especially being born Palestinian in the Gaza Strip. And Najla Shawa. I think what we can say here is that Israel simply does not see Palestinian uh, rights as equal to theirs. Uh, and that's why it's not, uh, it doesn't look at what Palestinians need to do and, and need to decide as a, 
as just human beings living on, on their land. Civilians in Gaza cannot leave. They are trapped inside an open prison of Israeli making, and the tight restrictions on the importing of materials stifens any opportunity for growing economic activity. That really prevents any, um, any potential for any real development. We see uh, people working in the private sector across you know, different uh, fields, different areas are struggling, are struggling and they c- continue to have, you see how many factories were destroyed in the, the, the last May escalation affecting entire sectors like the agriculture and, and others, just, just to name uh, one example. In all the efforts that have been made since 2014 to 2022 has been enormous from Palestinians themselves to try and recover and rebuild as much as possible. And, and you see how hard, hard it is on the ground and where they can reach and manage to a certain extent, but then immediately it gets blown down, uh, whether with a, with a restriction on export or import raw material, essential raw material, textile, wood, etc. Gaza has potential uh, on all that, but the game continues to be played in a way where you don't reach any stability or any real development. With the prospect of devastating violence always threatening to come over the horizon, Oxfam and other charities and NGOs working in Gaza must adapt their work in the knowledge that within a couple of minutes and a plane flying overhead, it could all be destroyed. The, the way to do it is that you plan for more crisis, unfortunately, in such context, is that you continue to plan for the normal, which is the normal of having recurrent uh, shocks for a place like Gaza. On the side, you try to do uh, as much as possible of uh, the technical work, the works of work on, on uh, capacity, knowledge sharing, uh, uh, you know, besides the, the physical support, the actual support. But the side also includes some work on, on influencing policies and programs where it can help you know, Palestinians in Gaza face any upcoming uh, crisis with somewhat preparedness. I think that's what mostly our role have been, is responding to what's happening now, being more prepared for, uh, unfortunately, any uh, events in in the future, whether it's military escalation or uh, something like what uh, COVID did. With the blockade of Gaza marking 15 years on the calendar, prospects for any sudden change look slim. The civilians in Gaza are trapped, trapped by a blockade, trapped by the repeated attacks that impede development, trapped by their opponents, and trapped by those who profess support. But I I certainly think that if there's political will on on all sides, and this includes on the Palestinian governance sides as well, then there could be progress made that would benefit the people of Gaza. Unfortunately, they are the party that is the most lost in this. Um, It's Israel, it's the US, it's, you know, Hamas and their leaders who have such political bluster. No one is really considering what the people of Gaza need. And in, in this moment, it is urgent humanitarian assistance and sovereignty. The New Era Voice was produced and written by Hugo Goodridge and presented by me, Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Kareem Trabusi. Our theme music was by Omar Elphil. The New Era Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Era Voice for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. 
Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. Thank you.